Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. Great to see you again. And for those listeners who always wonder why I say great to see you, is that when we record this podcast, uh, Jim and I are actually looking at each other across the screens, um, but only recording our voices. One day we'll become stars of YouTube, perhaps, and put up some video, but uh, that's for another day. When Jim and I were chatting this morning about the possibility of doing a podcast, uh, we were wondering if there was going to be very much to talk about. And by the time the afternoon has come around, we've got enough material with things having happened during the course of the day and stuff that we've noticed uh, that could fill several podcasts, which is a shame, really, because this is the last podcast for a few days, for at least a week, because both of us are going to be taking a break next week. So thank you to our listeners that miss us next week. But it's been a while since we have had a break from this. And so I hope it is the pause that refreshes. The agenda today, as I said, could take several podcasts. We're not going to get around to all of it, but I know Jim wants to talk about some Irish stuff that's emerged over the last while to do with government debt. He's got a few PS remarks about the summer economic statement that we discussed in our last pod. There have been some fascinating articles that both of us want to draw people's attention to, uh, particularly in the Financial Times, three pieces actually, two by Chris Giles that are related to each other and one by Martin Sanbu. And I think we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. It's been a heck of a day in markets. Now that can change. Things could go quiet after we stop speaking and it could all be reversed tomorrow. But at the time of speaking, everywhere you look, interest rate expectations, bond yields are up and stock markets are down. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said that uh, going bankrupt is a process that happens gradually 
and then all of a sudden. And markets all of a sudden have really taken fright again about the interest rate inflation outlook because we've had the Fed telling us via the minutes of their last meeting that they are their pause is, in the jargon, a hawkish pause, which means that they fully intend to put rates up again. There's the continued rhetoric from the ECB telling us that their rates are going up again and speculation won't be the last. And here in the UK, where I'm sitting at least, we've had panic in the government bond market, in the interest rate markets, as we now think interest rates, markets think interest rates will be going above 6% next year for all sorts of reasons, all connected to inflation. The particular event today was a Bank of England survey of chief financial officers. It's a regular thing that they do. And the Bank of England has been told that these companies represented by the CFOs are all going to be putting up wages a lot over the course of the next year. So that has caused panic in the UK bond market and has pushed uh, UK equities down a lot. Other things going on that are really interesting that I suspect we won't have time for. There's been a real interesting technological development this week that could be a game changer for all of us, not least for those of us that either do or intend to drive electric cars. Toyota has announced a technological development to do with batteries um, that looks really, really exciting if it comes off. And if we get a moment towards the end, I want to talk about that. And in the spirit of running out of time and not being able to talk about stuff, There's been a fantastic podcast with Boris Johnson today published in which uh, it shows that that man is a recidivist. He certainly never changes his mind. And when he was asked about the time and the events of his resignation, he pretended to fall asleep and feigned a snore. And I think that speaks to the wider malaise that the UK finds itself in. And I just wanted to say that it feels to me like the UK now is screaming for a reset And that means a general election sooner rather than later. I don't know whether we'll get one, but there's a growing feeling that that's what we need here. So there's a ton of stuff there, Jim. I don't know where you want to start. Maybe a good place would be that those couple of things that have been happening uh, around the Irish situation. Just a bit of an update on what's been happening in Ireland over the last few days. Um, In our last podcast, we spoke about the summer economic statement and the budgetary parameters that flow from that. The Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which was an independent body set up as a sort of a watchdog for the public finances, it came out today with a reaction to the summer statement. And the first thing it said was, the other day I described how the spending was going to grow by 6.1%, okay, before any budget day changes. That was equivalent to an increase of 5.2 billion in what the Department of Finance describes as core government spending, which is spending that once you encourage, it keeps repeating. But the Fiscal Advisory Council has looked at other elements of the summer economic statement, and there was something in there that confused me a little bit about um, windfall capital investment IFAC says that basically is another element of core spending. So basically, um, they are adding on 250 million next year to the 5.2 billion. So that's a spending increase total of 5.5 billion, which would be equivalent to an increase of 6.4% in core spending. And of course, a couple of years ago, the government set a ceiling of 5%. So IFAC was quite stringent about its reaction to this. Obviously, as well as the 5.5 billion in spending, there's the 1.1 billion 
in tax reduction that was announced the other day. So in total, IFAC describes this as pro-cyclical, that it undermines the spending rule and undermines the government's credibility in relation to that spending rule. It's also saying that based on the projections in the summer economic statement, the government is intent to break the spending limit every year out to 2026. So I think it's just worth mentioning that point and the very stringent reaction from the Fiscal Advisory Council. Of course, the government is under no obligation whatsoever to pay any heed to what IFAC is saying. Um, uh, it's, it's, they're just advisory more than anything else. But uh, it was interesting that in the last day or two, the chairperson of the Fiscal Advisory Council, Sebastian Burns, has resigned. No idea what the background that is, uh, but he has resigned. And um, IFAC, or the Department of Finance, will now be advertising for a new chair um, no, Chris, uh, I certainly would not have the academic credentials to go for something like that. Piece of news during the week was that Irish government debt fell by 11 billion to 225 billion in 2022. Um, and this is data from the National Treasury Management Agency, which is the state agency that manages Ireland's national debt. And it says that it has the potential to fall below 200 billion by 2030. So in 2022, we saw the first decline since 2019 and the largest annual decline since 2014. The other interesting piece was that the interest rate bill for the national debt in 2022 was unchanged from the previous year at 3.3 billion, which is an incredibly low interest bill. Because I remember back in 2014, when bond yields were significantly higher than they have been over the last five years, the projections were that by 2020, the annual interest bill could hit 10 billion in this country. But of course, since then, we've seen massive quantitative easing. We've seen bond yields pushed down to historically low levels. The National Treasury Management Agency has locked in a lot of our Irish borrowing at those low fixed rates. And as a consequence of that, you know, we are looking at a relatively low annual interest bill at the moment. Of course, if bond yields remain at current elevated levels, well, then over the coming years, as debt rolls over, the interest rate, the interest rate bill will increase. But for the moment, it's fine. Um, and, I, and I think it is interesting to contrast this with the UK situation um, UK borrowing costs last year, or sorry, UK borrowing costs at the moment are at a 16-year high of 5.67%, okay? Uh, the national debt in the UK is also rising uh, because of the fiscal situation and the lack of economic growth. So there is a marked contrast there once again between the Irish situation and what's happening across the water in the UK. The final piece of news out of Ireland was uh, the unemployment rate in June unchanged at 3.8%, um, down 6,000 on a year earlier. It was up a bit during the month, but compared to a year ago, um, the level of unemployment is declining. Another element of it that has been mentioned, the youth unemployment rate, that is unemployment amongst 15 to 24-year-olds, increased from 6.9% in May to 7.4%. Okay, there is probably an element there of, um, you know, school and college holidays having an impact. 
but this is seasonally adjusted. So maybe that seasonal effect has been captured. But anyway, that is one to watch. It is not good to see youth unemployment moving in the wrong direction. But compared to countries like Spain and Italy, Portugal, Ireland is in a very strong place regarding youth unemployment. So that really is a summary of what's been going on here over the last couple of days, particularly since our last podcast and our coverage of the summer economic statement. Jim, moving swiftly on to the international environment, starting with the UK. As I mentioned in my intro, it's been a horrible day in UK financial markets as expectations for interest rates have gone up further. We now expect them to uh, exceed 6% sometime next year. They're currently five short-term rates and they are bond yields are now exceeding uh, at the levels seen during the Liz Truss public sector finance crisis that we saw last year that nearly wrecked the pension fund industry and led directly to her resigning. We can only hope that the pension fund industry and indeed any other industry or business or individual exposed to interest rates is uh, in a reasonably robust position to withstand this renewed monetary interest rate shock. If it persists, I think we're going to find out where things aren't robust, aren't well prepared for higher interest rates. If interest rates in the UK go to the levels currently implied by market expectations, that's a big if, things can change very rapidly, as they have done so today, they can go the other way. I think that will completely and utterly wreck the UK house market. It's already slowing down. We've had construction data out this week that shows that the housing house building is slowing down rapidly. It hasn't fed through into prices in a big way yet, but house prices are coming down, I think, in the UK. There is plenty of data to support that. A gentle fall, it has to be said, nothing precipitate, but I think the fall has started. And if those interest rates go up in the way that the markets currently expect, I think those house price falls could well become precipitate. And I think that there is a huge risk to the whole economy from what the housing market might do, but also anything else that is exposed to higher interest rates. Because we've seen how the Liz Trust government got itself into trouble via government bond deals shooting up last year, via its effects on the pension fund industry. Higher interest rates have blown up water utility sector in recent weeks. And there are going to be other businesses, I think, affected by these higher interest rates. We don't know what they are yet, but I do think that vulnerabilities are going to be exposed. I've long had the view that one or more central banks are going to raise interest rates until they break something. And I do think that they are risking breaking something now. Jim, I know that you wanted to talk about this more generally in the context of an article written by Chris Giles and others in the FT yesterday. And I also know that he's written a a follow-up article to that today that uh, segues nicely uh, from what he, he did yesterday. So perhaps you might introduce the first piece and I'll talk about the second. Yeah, Chris, I um, listened over last night to our last podcast and in the introduction I said that I wanted to talk about uh, Chris Giles' piece in the Financial Times and uh, I actually forgot about it and we kind of ran out of time. But I, I just thought it was an interesting article uh, that's worth thinking about. And as, as you say, it does segue very much into the piece he wrote today. He was looking at the relationship between central bankers tightening interest rates and the 
the inability to get inflation under control. And there was a, a number of reasons cited for that. You know, one, one is the fact that services is now a much more important component of the economy. And of course, service activities are much less capital intensive than manufacturing activities. So as a consequence, um, are not as tied into the interest rate cycle. The other point, of course, was that there has been significant um, expansion of the fixed rate mortgage market. So as a consequence of that, um, mortgage borrowers in many countries are a lot less exposed to variable rate changes than might have been the case in the past. So that, that's the second factor. And a, th a third factor really kind of encapsulates the whole lot. Basically, it would appear that economies are a lot less interest rate sensitive today than would have been the case in the past for reasons that we do not fully understand. But the bottom line is Chris Giles was really trying to break down why, despite the very aggressive tightening of monetary policy we've seen over the last 18 months all over the world, that inflation is proving very, very sticky. I didn't find any of the answers particularly compelling, to be honest. And, and I think the most honest answer is that we really don't know at this juncture. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Fascinating to observe that after all these centuries of economic theorizing and data investigations into the links between money supply, interest rates, inflation, uh, all the original, you remember probably when you were in short trousers, Jim, we used to talk about cost push versus demand pull inflation. Those theories were junked. Then we thought it was the money supply. Those theories were junked. We don't really know with any degree of certainty. We don't really understand with precision the inflationary process. One of the things I would say is that each inflation episode has its own unique characteristics. And that explains why it's so blooming difficult to understand it. Each inflation episode historically, particularly the recent one, has overlapping but different causes. So it's horses for courses, and how you respond to that, it, it all depends. And Chris Giles has got a second piece out today, following on from that first one, as I mentioned, in which he describes the, cons the economic consensus of the last, gosh, at least quarter century, if not longer, is that fiscal policy, all those decisions that you were talking about there with the summer economic statement, the upcoming Irish budget, the crit criticisms of IFAC, of Ireland's fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, the consensus amongst economists, the consensus at IFAC would be that it's there for pursuing political objectives. 
It's there for managing sound and stable public finances, hence that discussion about debt and debt interest costs. And it's there for redistribution, something that Ireland does an awful lot of. The UK does it quite a bit of, but not as much as Ireland. And so those are the, the objectives of fiscal policy. That was a change when we came to think all these things. Uh, prior to that, prior to the 1970s, we used to think fiscal policy was an economic stabilization tool and that it could be used to manage the ups and downs of the business cycle. But we gave up thinking that after the great inflations of the 1970s, as well as simply re restricting fiscal policy to those objectives that I just mentioned. We decided as a profession to say that managing the business cycle in general and managing inflation in particular, really in particular, was the job of independent central banks via interest rates. And that consensus, that split uh, view of policy uh, has lasted, as I say, for, for decades. And Giles is arguing it's time to go and have another look at it because maybe it isn't appropriate right now because the most effective way of getting inflation down now Giles Mews was, would be maybe to tighten fiscal policy rather than raise interest rates. If you need to take demand out of the economy in the way our economies are configured today, and our economies may well be less interest rate sensitive, maybe the time has come to go back to that time when we thought that fiscal policy was a good stabilization tool as well as a good redistribution tool, and that therefore the best way to get inflation down could be to put taxes up and to cut government spending, exactly the opposite that Ireland is thinking about. Yeah, Chris, can I, can I just ask you, yeah, I mean, that is the, I guess, classic theory of fiscal policy as a, an economic stabilisation tool. Um, pre-1970. Pre yes, pre-1970, but it got a really, really bad rap during the global financial crash back in 2007, 2008, and the policies of austerity that were pursued in many countries in the aftermath of that crash to varying degrees. I mean, Ireland, um, I guess, was the poster child of austerity policies. Uh, but countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal um, had their significant element of it as well. Um, where do you think that austerity, because th there, there is a sort of a view out there, there's been a growing consensus the last five or six years that that IMF forced austerity policy was wrong. It caused way too much economic damage. So how do you sort of balance this economic stabilization argument that Chris Giles is talking about and the sort of arguments against? I think it, uh, it's, it's very difficult. The balance is very hard to strike. And given how little we obviously know about things like the inflation mechanism, how our economies actually function these days, the revised views we're having about the interest rate sensitivity of economies, you're going to have to be humble about what you say about all of this. Uh, the austerity to which you refer to depends on which country you look at. I have absolutely no doubt that the austerity pursued by David Cameron and George Osborne post-2010 was for the birds. It was unnecessary. It inflicted long-term damage on the productive capacity of the UK economy and on individual lives during that time. So I, I, I take no prisoners in my view that it was inappropriate for the economic conditions that we faced at the time. I think there was a better case for imposing austerity on Greece and indeed Ireland, not a cast iron case, I have to say, and maybe not a case for the extent to which austerity was imposed. But I do think that it was inevitable that things had to be cut back 
in those countries because they've gotten so out of hand previously. You and I have talked about in Ireland how we had uh, devoted all of the construction house tax revenue boom of the Celtic Tiger years. We baked all of those revenues into permanent tax commitments. That was always going to end in tears. No matter what your theory about fiscal policy, if you haven't got any money and the markets aren't willing to lend to you, which is the situation these governments faced, uh, austerity is the only choice that you face. And again, it's the circumstances that you find yourself in. And I think that's one of the things that we economists are pretty poor at, is that we try to come up with these universal theories, these uh, one-size-fits-all prescriptions for policy to say that when the business cycle is strong, you should do this, and when it's weak, you should do that. And I think that the new economics is going to have to say, well, it all depends on why your economy is strong. It all depends on why your economy is weak, what you should do, and that you can't have one-size-fits-all policies. So if economics was complicated before, I think that the changing structure of our economies is making it even more complicated than we previously imagined. So I know that sounds like I'm kicking for touch, Jim, but I do think that the answer to your question, as it is to many questions, is it all depends. And the I think Giles is making a good point, except for one fundamental factor, is that there is no government in the world at the moment contemplating putting up taxes and reducing government spending, at least no, nobody in the worlds that we inhabit. Here in the UK, Rishi Sunak is committed to cutting taxes ahead of the next general election. Good luck with that, would be, would be my view. And we know what's happening to fiscal policy in Ireland. We've talked about that at great length. And we know that Joe Biden is running massive fiscal deficits right now at a, at a time of a fully employed economy. Um, and indeed, that's one of the reasons why we've had uh, the inflation that we've had. So um, I do think that uh, it's a very interesting debate. In one sense, it's, it's an academic debate, so it's fascinating. But it's such an important, crucial debate, because what are we going to do now? If inflation is still too high, and these central bank monetary nutters that we have running things at the moment, they are charged with getting inflation down. All of this talk that we've just had, that Chris Giles has had, about maybe changing things and, and refocusing policy in a new way that in a way, looks back to to the old ways of doing things. The fact is, on the ground, central banks are the ones charged with responsibility, and they are really, really going for it. And they are telling us, which is one of the reasons why the markets have got so spooked today, that they're going to be putting up interest rates, buying up by whatever it takes, that old uh, expression, to get inflation down. And if you put all of that other stuff that we're talking about, economies being less interest rate sensitive than they were, that means they're going to have to put interest rates up a heck of a lot more than perhaps we previously thought only yesterday, to the point where if you add in my concerns, which I have said on this podcast so many times, that whatever the peak in interest rates is going to be, it's going to be too much. They're going to over do overkill. I think that um, in v- v- different ways, in different jurisdictions, but particularly in the UK, but also in Europe, they run the risk of driving their economies into the ground. And I think that that risk is growing. And I think that's one of the reasons why equity markets are taking fright, which is that there's monetary overkill coming. Now, the third article that I wanted you to to discuss with you was written by somebody called Martin Sanbu, somebody who we have referred to a lot on this podcast. And he asks the question, front and centre, what if there is nothing central banks can do about inflation? Now, of course, that's a very 
uh, tabloid type headline. Of course, there's something that central banks can do about inflation. And the short answer is, well, if that link has weakened between interest rates and inflation, what they're going to have to do is just put interest rates up to the point where they actually get inflation down. And that could be, as we keep saying, much, much higher than it is now. So everybody with a mortgage is now suitably scared to death. But his arguments, of course, being Martin Sandu, are much, much more subtle than this. And he thinks that inflation actually, uh, because central banks have had nothing to do with it, either causing it or curing it, is coming down of its own accord. Um, he's very much a born-again team transitory member, if you like, in that he thinks that virtually all of the inflation that we've seen was caused by rolling supply shocks, pandemic-related, Ukraine war-related, that are now rapidly dissipating and inflation will come down all of its own accord. And that the costs of putting interest rates up in the way that we now fear are going to be massive. And he takes particular aim at the ECB, who are making the case that because they got their inflation forecast so wrong, because they think that they're still underestimating the amount of inflation that is in the economy, um, they are making speeches saying, we need to make a mistake, my words, not theirs, on the upside for interest rates so that we have the flexibility, if we have made that mistake, to reduce interest rates when uh, we are shown to have made that mistake and inflation is back down where we want it and is showing risks of actually falling below our target. Um, that, I think, is looking around far too many corners. And the point that Sanbu makes, which is critical, is that during that process, if you think that as a central banker, your job is to now do overkill, which is what the ECB are, I think, explicitly saying, we need to overkill the interest rate story, we need to kill our economies, um, but don't worry, we'll, we'll reduce interest rates when that becomes obvious. The damage that you will do in the interim will be not worth it. It will be just dreadful. So you should really think about this in a more, much more serious and deep way. And he takes aim uh, at the ECB explicitly on this. So I think that uh, all of this is quite chaotic. It's difficult for us as professional economists to get our head around because so much is changing so quickly. The, the old ways of thinking are proving to be unsuitable to the current environment that we, that we are in. Uh, but what it means for ordinary people, Jim, I think is dreadful. I think that... Um, interest rates, if they do what they say they're going to do, are going to cause an awful lot of people, an awful lot of our listeners, an awful lot of pain, an awful lot of unnecessary pain is coming their way. One of the um, interesting aspects of what you've been saying, I think, is EU fiscal policy. Uh, when COVID hit in March 2020, the EU's fiscal rules, which basically limit the amount of borrowing you can do over the economic cycle and limits the amount of money governments can spend. Those fiscal rules were, I think, sensibly suspended in March 20. Uh, they have not been reinstated, but they are being looked at at the moment and they will be reinstated at some stage. But the learned judges in Germany are taking a court challenge to get them reintroduced as quickly as possible. And uh, one of the problems with the fiscal rules in the past was that they lacked total flexibility. There was a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, it didn't matter whether you were a Southern European country with a serious infrastructure deficit that required massive capital borrowing and spending, or whether you were a developed Northern European economy that didn't need very much in the way of investment spending. Uh, but the same rules applied. 
And um, I think it will be a massive mistake to uh, reimpose those fiscal rules without building in a huge level of flexibility to take account of the individual circumstances of different countries. Looking at uh, that whole central bank argument, uh, the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, um, has just delivered a speech basically saying or claiming that there is evidence that some retailers are overcharging customers and that there will be moves by the regulators on retail markets, specifically fuel markets, which should help consumers. So here we have a central banker clutching at straws. I mean, basically blaming some of the inflation in the system on the behavior of retailers. Um, and that resonates with stuff we've heard here in this country over the last few weeks as well. Across the Atlantic in the United States, we've seen really strong um, labor market data today, um, up 497,000. This comes a day ahead of the non-farm payrolls, which is likely to show a strong increase as well. So this will scare the hell out of the Federal Reserve. And indeed, it probably reflects the minutes of the last meeting of the US Federal Reserve when, okay, there was a consensus that the Fed should do nothing on the interest rate front in June, take a pause, but very clear that there is a strong inclination to increase interest rates further from here. And that's consistent with, I think, everything you've been seeing here. But uh, this is one of the amazing things, despite all of that monetary tightening, despite all of the global headwinds with Ukraine war, cost of living, cost of doing business, and so on, labor markets everywhere remaining really, really tight. And that is something that I think will push central bankers um, over the edge. This is part of this story that I was telling earlier on about how everything is so unusual at the moment that the economies clearly are structured differently to how we have experienced them in the past they are structured differently to how our models of the economies are built our models of the economy are built mostly on past data and it's quite clear that economies are structured and behaving very differently compared to the past and when we talked about interest rate sensitivity having changed Nobody's got a really compelling and convincing explanation for why these labor markets are so incredibly tight on both sides of the Atlantic, US, UK, Ireland, all incredibly tight labor markets. We don't have an adequate explanation for why the service sector of our economies are still, despite all these interest rate rises, despite all that we know about high wages and high fuel costs and the energy crisis are doing so well. One of the amazing pieces of data just out today was that uh, a survey called the ISM survey for services sector in the United States, which is still about 80% of the economy, so it's the biggest part of the economy, um, actually went up by much more than was expected, uh, showing very robust growth. And that is, is another puzzle. When it, it, All of these numbers are coming in different, very different to expectations. Even I, as somebody that's very skeptical about economic forecasting, I'm, I'm surprised by just how wrong the forecasters are getting their numbers. And that's not to criticize them. It's because I think things have changed so much, Jim. Yeah, in, in, incredible uncertainty out there. And the rules of economics are certainly being torn up on a weekly basis. Chris, good to talk again. Um, have a good week next week. Um, I'm going to be in London looking after some family business. So I hope you have a good one and talk the week after. Absolutely, Jim, and wish all our readers a happy 
um, uh, podcast-free week. Um, we'll enjoy the break, and I hope they do too. Cheers, mate. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. When it comes to financial markets, when a bubble bursts, we pricked it first. I'm Will Page. And I'm Richard Kramer. Together we host Bubble Trouble, where we share the inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. The problem with markets, finance and economics, is often you don't know what it means or how to even separate fact from fiction, and there's a lot of fiction out there. In each episode of Bubble Trouble, we frame what companies and markets do in simple terms. We're independent, irreverent, and we're not on anybody's payroll. Listen to Bubble Trouble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.